founded back in 2012 in Tel Aviv, now with offices in Palo Alto and Tel Aviv, 60 folks full-time, about half and half between product and engineering, and then market and sales. They've raised $35 million, have you know 20 of the Fortune 500 as customers, but less than 500 total, so between 20 and 500 customers. Average kind of contract value, you know, really hitting that million dollar mark as they help try and, 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 and help these IT guys in these war rooms understand which alerts are important and which ones are simply noise. This is episode 708. Coming up tomorrow morning, you'll learn from Blake Smith, who breaks down how he's got 17,000 people using his app to efficiently manage their wardrobe. But first, here's today's episode. This is The Top, where I interview entrepreneurs who are number one or number two in their industry in terms of revenue or customer base. You'll learn how much revenue they're making, what their marketing funnel looks like, and how many customers they have. I'm now at $20,000 per talk. Five and six million. He is hell-bent on global domination. We just broke our 100,000 unit sold mark. And I'm your host, Nathan Latka. Hello, everybody. My guest today is Asaf Resnick. He's the founder and CEO of Big Panda, an algorithmic IT operations platform that turns IT alert noise into insight, unifies fragmented operations, and enables digital enterprises to attain dramatically higher service levels. Prior to founding the company, he was an investor with Sequoia Capital, where he focused on early-stage companies across enterprise software, SaaS, and the internet sectors. Asaf, are you ready to take us to the top? I am. I am. Thanks for having me. Sequoia sounds like a sweet gig. Why do you jump out of that and launch Big Panda? Oh, that's a good question. Sometimes I still ask myself that. And the hardest day is I ask myself, why, why did I leave this golden cage? Um, you know, I, I spent six years at Sequoia, and it, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. I, I had the, the privilege to work with you know some incredibly talented entrepreneurs and incredibly talented uh, partners, but but I was young, How and young? I felt uh, at the time. Oh, I started there at age twenty nine. Okay, uh, and, and I learned a ton. You know, it was one of those kind of pivotal moments in my career that you know a fork in the road, and you look back, and this was definitely one of those forks in the road. But after a few years, a I, I kind of I got the entrepreneur bug, and I'd been around a lot of entrepreneurs and and seeing them through the good times and the bad times, and. And I kind of wanted to get a sense for that myself. And, and I also had a sense that uh, having not started a company before, I was kind of telling people how to drive a car, but I'd never driven a car myself. And, and so I, I really wanted to kind of eat my own dog food. And, and, and that was a lot of the impetus to did, leave. I mean, did, you, did you miss out on any deals at Sequoia because the entrepreneur was like, listen, I got a term sheet from the guy at Bessemer and he's built his own company before. So sorry, Asafa, I got to go with him. Uh, I wasn't a partner. I was kind of a, 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 a principal there, so helping on a lot of deals at the right. time. So I personally didn't have a, a, a lot of that. And, you know, Sequoia is a tough place to turn down. Yep. Uh, but so it really wasn't from a, from a perspective of winning deals. It was more from a perspective of personal career growth. And how does – so just people that aren't familiar with how VC works, you have kind of analysts sure. and then principals and then managing directors. Is that kind of how it was at Sequoia? Uh, every firm is different. Sequoia is pretty flat, but you know, different firms have the kind of very regimented. You're an analyst, and then you're an associate. Every firm is a little different. And so, how was Sequoia? <sighs> it, pretty flat. 
you know, there, there's uh, it's it's a pretty flat organization where the partners do the majority of, of their own kind of uh, sourcing and deal flow and, and due diligence. And so are you um, in your role as a principal, would you get peaked interest in a certain sector and go research the heck out of that sector, then kind of pick a champion to go after? Or did you just bet on people? You brought people related deals to to the other partners. Sure. I mean, I don't want to talk too much about kind of Sequoia's uh, you, you specifically. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of this is proprietary. Um, it's a combination for me personally. It's a combination of both. So you definitely want to be armed with uh, thesis, thesis, I guess, theses. I don't know. It's the plural of thesis uh, about um, where you think there's opportunities across the market, where you think there's vacuums that are that are ripe to be filled. But on the other hand, you're not the one that's creating um, uh, 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 companies. You also have to, you know, it's a combination of I have thesis of where there's uh, opportunities in the market, coupled with where they're inspiring entrepreneurs that are doing amazing things and do I want to partner with them? So it's a little bit of both. We're going to jump into Big Panda here in a second, which is your current venture, uh, which seems like is on a terrible dive into it. But first, last question about Sequoia, which which deal or entrepreneur were you uh, most proud of discovering or bringing to Sequoia? Uh, That's kind of like asking which of your your kids you love the best. Yeah, I'll pass on that. No, come on. A a lot of good ones that... that, I'm very proud to have been part of and uh, some still very, very good friends and, and uh, colleagues. So if, so if any of them are listening, he's giving all of you congrats, yes. but just n- name They're one all- that, that was really interesting for you, right? That just, you didn't expect it. It did well. Well, I wouldn't say I didn't expect that it did well. Um, I, I'd say probably a, a one that just comes to mind, but I don't know if it's necessarily the, the one, one of my favorites. Uh, we invested out of uh, Israel in a company called Snap2, mm-hmm. which did uh, a very interesting company that did um, – back in the day when not everyone and their mother had a smartphone, particularly in developing nations, was able to do a lot of porting of uh, you know uh, uh, mobile applications to what was called uh, – uh, feature phones at the time. So imagine uh, folks in, in developing countries that don't necessarily have 4G connections and fancy touchscreen phones, and they want to be able to use apps like Facebook and Snap2 and, and Twitter and LinkedIn as well. And it's just a really, really good job of bringing kind of modern mobile connectivity and apps to the developing world. Um, we're bought by Facebook and now are really part of the charge of leading uh, what Facebook is doing around bringing that kind of mobile connectivity to, to the developing world. So, Snap too. There you have it, guys. Let's uh, jump into Big Panda. Uh, walk us through what the company does. So essentially what we do at a very high level is automate the ability of human beings and IT operations uh, to keep up with a data center that's radically involved. So think of uh, the folks in IT operations. So the world spends over a trillion dollars a year in IT operations. Mm-hmm. And, and in very, very broad buckets, you can think of that in three very, very big buckets. Uh, folks who, who build and scale software, folks who build and scale infrastructure, and then folks in what's called service operations that actually have to keep all that software and all that infrastructure running. Those can be called network operations engineers, what's called the NOC. Uh, They can be called DevOps engineers. They can be called site reliability engineers. A very, very big uh, chunk of all that IT spend is towards engineers that actually have to keep the lights on. 
And if you think of what's been happening in, in, in the data center around, hey, I've got to keep this, these, this software and this infrastructure running, but that software and that infrastructure has radically transformed uh, over the last 15 years. So think of, uh, if I'm a large enterprise, 20 years ago, I was buying the majority of my stuff from a handful of large vendors. Mm -hmm. I was buying it from IBM and from Oracle and from BMC and CA and maybe HP. And that gave me the lion's share of my systems, my monitoring tools, up and down my stack. Uh, and so from, a, uh, from the perspective of the folks actually have to keep the lights on, you had just a handful of tools uh, you had data centers that were comprised of, you know, several hundred to several thousand uh, servers in your basement, and things moved really, really slowly. And so you can so keep let me Let me ask this a different way. Can you tell a story about a customer? Uh, obviously, I'm sure you have NDAs on some of your customers. Was there a specific customer you can name and actually tell me how they're using Big Panda? Um, sure. Uh, let me talk about... Um, let me not name, but a, a Fortune 50 company okay. who, who's a customer of ours, a very large networking company, uh, came to us and said, hey, 20 years ago, all we sold was network machines and routers and switches and so forth. But today, uh, we're a services company, and we've got lots of SaaS offerings to lots of different companies, and we have to make sure that those uh, SaaS offerings uh, give a reason, give the kind of SLAs that we've promised to our companies. SLA guys is a service level agreement, service level agreement. So if I promise some large multinational bank that I'm going to have nine, I'm going to be up and available 99.999% of the time. Well, I better be, I better do that. And to actually keep that stuff running, I have to keep track of the same company it has to keep track of hundreds of applications that are running on tens of thousands of servers and, and VMs, virtual machines, in 24 different global clouds. I've got teams of engineers in the Ukraine and in San Jose, California, and in India, and they're using 15 different monitoring tools to figure out what the heck's going on. So imagine you're the Porsche uh, that's sitting in kind of this war room coming to work with 15 different monitoring tools, and you've got 70,000 different uh, events that you have to keep track of. And you have to understand, hey, within those 70,000 different data points about the health of every nook and cranny of my IT stack is a potential problem that means my big customer who's got serious SLAs is not getting uh, the quality of service that they expect. That's a really big problem. And... Uh, the amount of stuff that those engineers have to look at has become a big data issue. So, stop. Are you are you only kind of when incidents start happening on a specific node or a specific database or certain occurrences, you kind of help these folks in the war room quickly figure out if this is something that's correlated, like an attack, or if it's not related, it's just regular kind of system performance. Like, how are is it reactionary or, or, or preventative? It's both. It's, it's very much both. So right now. The way it is is imagine you're 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 in that war room. You've got seventy thousand different alerts, and you know one percent of those alerts are really important, and the other ninety nine percent are just noise. Go filter that. Go filter through that at any reasonable time. So what we do is we use a lot of machine learning and dynamic clustering to say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. IT operations, you don't really have seventy thousand alerts. You have just a handful of core issues. 
with lots of symptoms, but you don't have to be a data scientist to figure that out. And tell, we make tell me what a noise alert would sound like. So, what would it actually say? That's something that's not important, but still takes up an IT person's time because it hits their in inbox. Great question. Okay, so um, I've got an alert that says that server number one two three has uh, has used up the majority of its memory, okay. or it's got low disk I/O. Or, or, or something that, that's, a, that's a problem. Now, is that a problem? Well, it's a problem if lots of other servers in that cluster are also experiencing problems. And then it's only a problem if that cluster services some kind of critical application. And then it's really only a problem if a customer is having, it, it, who's, who relies on that application is having a crappy user experience. And to piece together all those problems, I've got to look at 15 different monitoring tools and spend an hour or a day connecting the dots just to figure out, is this problem with my server something that I should be concerned about, or can I move on to something more pressing? So I'm oversimplifying here drastically, but you're basically a, a very, a, a much sexier version of like kind of if-then statements coming through alerts. In other words, if there are 10 servers in this whatever stack and nine of them are almost full and the 10th is giving me alert that it's almost full, I know if that last one gets filled up, it becomes a big issue because it's a critical part of our application and then that part goes down. It's kind of if this, if this, if this, and then that's how you decide what alerts to surface. Is that accurate? It's somewhat accurate. The, the only thing I would add to that is the if-then statements themselves are dynamic. Got it. So you can't come in there and say, hey, if I had unlimited human resources, they could come in and write 30,000 if-then statements, and, and would that be the same thing? No, because those set of if-then statements look very different on a Tuesday that they would on a Wednesday. Yep. Because these IT environments are changing so quickly. Yep. We're almost so running out of, well, you're, you're educating sure. me here, and, and I'm yes. very curious to know, and I just realized we're, about, we're running out of time. Let me ask some kind of rapid fire business related questions here. Sure. So what year did you launch in? Uh, we launched in 2012. Okay. And, uh, and what's your model? Like, how do you make money? Is it pay as you go? Is it SaaS? What? So we're SaaS offering. So we charge by uh, an annual subscription fee, depending on how many virtual machines or containers uh, you're using. So basically, a, uh, uh, how big is the company? How big is the, your footprint? Yep. And are we, I mean, are we talking, I'm making this up, are we talking 10 grand per month or um, or, uh, or 10 grand per year or a million per year? G give me some kind of range. No, we're talking much more towards the latter, uh, towards the latter end. We, I mean, we cater to very large enterprises, uh, we oftentimes can sa help save them millions of dollars, both in terms of uh, headcount efficiencies via automation and in terms of pr uh, uh, improved performance of their offering. Got it. So high, high six figures. I imagine you have some contracts that probably break a million bucks easily if you're saving someone 10, 20 million bucks, right? All right. Okay. And and these folks, um, do you, what's your team size currently? Uh, right now, I think uh, we're about 60 people. And how much have you raised? Ooh, uh, we have raised to date, uh, oh, about almost $35 million. Explain to me the strategy behind doing kind of initial large close on a Series B, and then almost a year later, adding $5 million on top of that. Strategically, why do you do that? Assuming my, my research is correct, and that's what you did. Sure. Uh, it's very tactical. Uh, you know, we, we had originally done a Series B, Oh, gosh, when was it? I guess it was back in mid-2015, I want to say. 
And at the time, you know, we were fortunate enough to have multiple term sheets. And uh, we ended up taking a, a, a Series B with, with you know, a, a great partner. Uh, you know, our partners today include uh, Sequoia and Mayfield and, and, and Battery. And we were fortunate enough to have multiple term sheets. So at the time, uh, you know, one of the investors came and said, hey, can we add a little bit more money? And at mm -hmm. the time, you know, we didn't really need more money. I didn't really want the dilution. The sun was shining in the VC environment. Uh, and then towards the end of 2015, uh, you know, people started downgrading uh, the value of Snapchat and all these other unicorns, and and people were thinking that winter was, you know, cl rain clouds were forming, and people were thinking that winter is coming again in the VC environment. And uh, you know, it turns out later that after a year, it looks like the rain clouds had disappeared. By the time we didn't know, so we had a, we had an opportunity to. Uh, bulk up the balance sheet by another five million dollars, and when I saw rain clouds forming, I said, "Hey, you know, maybe it makes sense to get a winter coat from a capital perspective, just to have a you know a healthier balance sheet." Um, and it was a you know very uh, pragmatic move. Sometimes when you see this kind of pattern in terms of capital raising, it's either what you just described or others. Sometimes they'll go try and raise their next round, right, a C round, and they just won't get a valuation they like. So they'll say, you know what, let's just get a quick bridge here, right, to keep growing the company, grow valuation, and try for Series C later. Was that line of thinking at all included in getting that $5 million winter coat? No, because this was very much, you know, it was just a few months after we'd already done the Series B. So we had plenty of pipeline. Oh, my I mean, research is wrong there. I thought that was over. I thought it was over a year later. No, no, no. Got it. Okay, good. So no. it was like you had the round open. Was it on the same terms? You just had an open, basically an open round, and then you just maximum close that other others pile on. Very quick. Yes. Awesome. Very good. Okay. Um, let me see here. You guys are all location wise. Are you all based in San Francisco? No. So half the company is based in Palo Alto, and then half the company is based in Tel Aviv. Uh, so we started the company in Tel Aviv, and, and all of uh, engineering is still out there. Uh, so I was living in, in, in Israel at the time. Uh, uh, There's just a very, very strong pool uh, of engineers out in Israel, and it's not the kind of feeding frenzy uh, of, of a hiring market that you have here in the United States, especially in the Silicon Valley. So we started there, built just a very strong team of engineers, and when it came time that I felt that, hey— it's time to start engaging the market. I moved out to Silicon Valley to start the headquarters. And so at this point, we have sales and marketing and product out in the valley and engineering and UX out in, out in Israel. And then give us, since obviously the company, I mean, you're progressing nicely, launched many years ago, over 35 million bucks raised, team of about 60. Is that breakdown on 60? What percentage of those folks are engineering versus kind of inside sales and marketing? Uh, it's probably about half-half. I'd say probably half of the people are engineering and product, and the other half are more go-to-market oriented. So you do have a playbook you're actively executing around selling to these IT departments, really inside salespeople on a comp structure. I mean, right? Is that accurate or no? Uh, you have to have a playbook in order to scale. Absolutely. Some, some people oh, that sell, yes. I, will, I will tell you, <laughs> I've talked to a few people that have pretty significant kind of SaaS business that sell into IT and they yeah. really actually don't have a playbook because it's all utility driven. When they add X amount of nodes, they know the product's going to drive extra usage and the upsell is actually very natural. Some people have inside sales people calling in to drive expansion ARPU. So I was curious what your model was. No, no, we're very disciplined about it, uh, especially since it's our, our sales model is not, hey, let's sell you $5,000 and then let's grow every month. 
we come in and say, hey, let's do a 100 to $1 million land, 100,000 to $1 million land, and then a multi-year contract. And those are much more uh, deliberate deals. Yep. And then before we wrap up here, give me a sense of kind of company size. We obviously have a number of employees, but how many businesses would you say are paying you today? And give a range if you're not comfortable with a specific number. Yeah, I mean, I'd rather not talk about sales and kind of customer, uh, uh, the number of customers. Uh, but, you know, we cater to the largest uh, Fortune 500 companies in the world. So we have, you know, probably at least uh, 20 companies today in the Fortune 500 and, and then, uh, you know, a large number of kind of medium-sized enterprises as well. Yeah, I mean, you don't need—this is not a low ARPU business. You don't need thousands of customers to really build something special here. So, I mean— I'll put a huge range on it's fair to say you have less than 500 customers. Yes. Okay, yes. perfect. Great. If we had 500 customers, if you had 500 customers paying you kind a of a million dollar each, ACVs, right? Nice. Exactly. You're that's taking very, me out to a steak nice. dinner. That's yes. what's happening, right? All right, guys, I talked about this earlier, but I schedule like so many meetings, it would blow your mind. I mean, all my podcast interviews, right? Hundreds of entrepreneurs I talk to monthly, I schedule. And you know what? I do it so efficiently. I get them all to agree to my calendar. So all the calls are back to back to back. That means I'm not switching in between tasks all day long. I get them to batch so that I can be very efficient. It's so critical. I use a tool called Acuity Scheduling to do this at nathanlacka.com forward slash schedule. It eliminates the back and forth between me and people I'm trying to meet with. It makes it very simple. And most importantly, they help me keep my no-show rate very low because they send out reminders. Helps you look very professional. So go to nathanlacka.com forward slash schedule to sign up and you get a great deal. You know, you guys know this. I hit people hard. I make great deals. And Gavin, the CEO, has given us a great deal. If you sign up like normal people, okay, on their website, you only get a 14-day free trial. If you use my link, nathanmaka.com forward slash schedule, you get 45 days free. Okay, it's the best. It's free. Go to nathanmaka.com forward slash schedule right now to sign up. And I'll see you there. All right. Asaf, let's wrap up here with the famous five. Number one, what is your favorite business book? Oh, wow. Uh, and, okay, I wasn't prepared. Uh, the goal, uh, it, it's about uh, the theory of constraints. Uh, just a really, really wonderful book about nothing to do with high tech, but really around how to create kind of efficient processes by always focusing on the primary bottleneck or constraint at any one time. Number two, is there, is there a CEO you're following or studying currently? Ooh. Um, you know, there's not. Okay, number three, what's your favorite online tool like Acuity Scheduling? My favorite online tool? Interesting. Um, probably Quip, which was recently bought by Salesforce. Number four, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Um, you know, it, it's like that famous saying for entrepreneurs, I, slept like, I sleep like a baby at night, I wake up every two hours and cry. <laughs> On average, what do you get? Um, probably around five hours. And what's your situation? Uh, married, single, do you have kids? I have, I'm married with three children. Oh, my Lord. How old are they? They're five, three, and five months. Oh, my so gosh. I don't, 
you know, entrepreneur, no entrepreneur. I don't sleep at night. Well, listen, hopefully in like five, 10 years, they move from a liability into an asset because you can employ them for very cheap and they help build your business, right? That's how yes, it works. my five month old is already coding. She's, she's amazing. <laughs> Taking good coders here, so. <laughs> That's amazing. All right, and how old are you? Oh, me, I'm old, I'm 41. Okay, last question. Take us back 21 years. What do you wish your 20 year old self knew? Wow. This is deep philosophical questions. What do I wish? Um, you know, I really have no regrets. I, I took, uh, you know, I, I, out of college, I worked, but I took a year off of life, traveled uh, in Central America and in India for, for a year. Not and something you regret, though. Just wisdom you've gained. Is there a nugget you would give back to your 20-year-old self to speed up that learning curve? You know, not off the top of my head. What do you tell your kids? What do you tell your oldest, your eldest kid when it comes to just life in general? Don't eat so much dessert and brush your teeth. She's five years old. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's a good question. I probably, I mean, in retrospect, I'd say maybe. You know, I, I'll say this. I think in my 30s, I was, had a, I was an employee throughout my 30s. And only later into life, as I joined Sequoia and started my own company, did I really start thinking as an entrepreneur. And one of the things that being an entrepreneur forces you to do is, is take off the blinders. Because at the end of the day, everything comes down to your judgment call, and you have to be able to make judgments very quickly with imperfect information. And that's a muscle memory that you have to be able to learn. And we, as an employee, you oftentimes you're not forced to make those very quick judgment calls around a broad number of things and a broad number of broad range of different kinds of people. Uh, I, I want to say probably start a company soon. There you guys have it from the founder of Big Pan. Asafi would have he would have started thinking earlier as an entrepreneur, started a company earlier. Again, the company doing well, founded back in 2012 in Tel Aviv, now with offices in Palo Alto and Tel Aviv, 60 folks full-time, about half and half between product and engineering, and then market and sales. They've raised $35 million, have you know 20 of the Fortune 500 as customers, but less than 500 total, so between 20 and 500 customers. Average kind of contract value, you know, really hitting that million-dollar mark as they help try and, 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 and help these IT guys in these war rooms understand which alerts are important and which ones are simply noise. Asaf, thank you for taking us to the top. All right. Thank you, Nathan. If you enjoyed Asaf today, go back and listen to yesterday's episode with Manny. The government has given him power to let non-accredited investors invest. It's the first time this has happened. 